0: Hey, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this is the final episode of season one of I Better Start Writing This Down. We're going to come back in the fall, September or October. But for the rest of the summer, whenever someone says to you, hey, what's this thing I keep hearing about podcasts? What are those? Before you tell them about the big guys Tell them about IBSWTD, And if you didn't get a chance to, maybe just give us a quick rating or a quick review in iTunes. It really does help the show. Okay, start the show. Over here, gentlemen. I, I have a table here for us. afternoon, Start. gentlemen, Please not introduce yourselves. Because I recognize you again. These are dangerous times. You make a lot times, out times, when I tell times, the truth. I'm Joe Stracci. And I better start writing this down. Episode 10 Brendan O'Connor The first concrete memory I have of depression. I was in middle school. I couldn't fall asleep at night. Kurt Cobain watched over me in my bed. A bed that As night fell, I felt pinned to. There was an enormous weight on top of me. It's a sensation that I would later learn is quite common amongst the D crowd. To help, I'd conjure up situations that took me out of the one that I was in. In the most common, I imagined myself in a hospital bed. The way the fantasy usually worked was that I'd been jumped. A word that is used frequently in middle school and high school in New York City. Everyone was always getting jumped or worried about getting jumped on the train or while waiting for the bus or just during the general period of after school. And so I'd been jumped and people were coming to visit me. All the girls I was in love with, they usually said,
1: I'm so sorry
0: and cried. There were my friends, the ones from my old neighborhood, who hadn't necessarily morphed into the weirdo I was so bent on becoming, but were still loyal to me. And of course, by the end, my sense of restorative justice already beginning to fall into place, the older brothers of the kids who had jumped me would visit. They were wiser, and had survived and already understood how meaningless the divide was in middle school between the kids in the gifted classes 7-1 and 7-2 and the kids in the lower classes anything beyond 7-4 all the way through 14 also at play during this time was the rock-rap wars of the day in 1995 you were either a rock kid or a rap kid you liked one or the other but never both and both sides were intolerant of the other. The lines were drawn. There were blue-haired burnouts raging around mosh pits who listened to Green Day and Pearl Jam and slicker kids with high and tight fades and link chains who listened to Puff Daddy and wore athletic jerseys and Jordans. Looking back beyond the usual immature foolishness I find this division odd. The dawn of the metal rap hybrid phenomenon, your corns and your limp biscuits, was upon us. In another year or so, Wu-Tang would perform at Lollapalooza, and Beck would hit the mainstream with two turntables and a microphone. Like all good freaks, I didn't fit into either category. I had parents that were too involved in my life to let me become an actual burnout. I only got to play one on TV. And at the same time, my love of sports, mainly hockey and baseball, meant that I had to trade in my wallet chain and guitar for a baseball glove or a hockey stick on weekends. There exists from that era a picture of me in one of my roller hockey jerseys, the team I was the captain of wearing my favorite black corduroys and black Converse All-Stars that I and the girls I was in love with had written all over. A line drawn indeed.
1: Someday I'll love Ocean Ball. Ocean don't be afraid. The end of the road is so far ahead it is already behind us don't worry your father is only your father until one of you forgets like how the spine won't remember its wings no matter how many times our knees kiss the pavement
0: By 8th grade, I was in deep. The sense of isolation in my head was fierce, a circular hall of mirrors. It was attention-seeking behavior on some level, but at the core, it was a real and present alienation. In 8th grade, there weren't many boys who carried around a poetry notebook and painted a fingernail or two. Tribal camaraderie And conflict began to take shape around this time as well. I remember many swollen crowds watching smaller crowds square off against each other. The threat of a fight in the air. Words used to insult and degrade that aren't acceptable now. None of it interested me. I was supposed to feel some allegiance somewhere. Maybe based on music or skin color or neighborhood. But the truth was that I didn't like being with anyone save for a couple of people and girls, of course, the ones that would have me. But the hormones raged on around me. Our eighth grade homeroom teacher was a fiery late middle-aged social studies teacher named Laura Pedretti, Miss Pedretti. To keep the collective pit bull on the leash, she won upped us all. Her voice was loud. Her congratulations on a job well done was exaggerated, and her admonishments were delivered at a frightening timber that seemed to pulse at the same frequency as the bars of fluorescent light in her classroom. No one was safe. Everyone went up on the chopping block at least once. Now, I think it was planned. It was a way of cutting us all down to size in front of everyone else. It kept us honest, at least for a 40-minute stretch. She kept order by making sure that she was the baddest dude in the yard, not any of us. There were no lockers in the hallways of IS-192. It was a safety precaution. Instead, each classroom had a double row in the back. You used them once during homeroom, the beginning of the day, and once at the end. As an adult now, I can only imagine what those morning homeroom sessions must have been like for Miss Pedretti. 8am. 30 12 and 13 year olds. Nobody wanted to be there. And nobody wanted the day that still lay ahead in its entirety to begin. There's no amount of coffee in the world that mellows that situation. At that time, I was always making random decisions to supplement my daily routine. Anything to stand out. I would carry around a random figurine for a week, claiming it was my good luck charm. I would avoid all the cracks in the sidewalk as I walked to the number 8 bus stop after my mom dropped my brother off at preschool. I'd write something on my sneakers or on my arms why did everyone write on their arms in middle school? Or wear a pair of women's sunglasses? If the Nirvana influence wasn't obvious by now, that should do it. One day, I decided I'd wear the hood of my sweatshirt up all day. I distinctly remember the feeling that day of being underneath the hood, especially when I crossed my arms in front of my chest and how I felt just a bit more removed. Safe, even. IS-192 was a public school. I'm sure there were some vague clothing regulations, but it was not a school that enforced the uniform the way they do now. You weren't allowed to wear hats in the building, though. And that morning, the morning I'd decided to hide for the day in my hood, Ms. Pedretti decided that a hood was a hat and that it had to go. There was some slip that needed to be handed in that morning. Something my mother had signed off on. Maybe graduation-related. I don't remember now. But homeroom was the time when housekeeping items, like parental notification slips, were handled. Like middle schools everywhere, collecting slips like this took weeks. Nobody remembered or paid attention to due dates. I was late bringing mine in, really late. I'm pretty sure I was the last one. And because of this, Ms. Pedretti decided that my time was finally up. I'd be lying if I said I remembered the conversation exactly, but it was a badgering that followed the same track of all of her other public scoldings. Her voice got higher and higher as she went along, refusing to let you off the hook. Throughout, she sarcastically referred to me as Mr. Strachey, insisting simultaneously that I was an adult who was shirking my adult responsibilities. And how could I possibly dream of making it in the real world if I couldn't handle something as simple as remembering a permission slip and that I was a child in need of a verbal spanking? and there was no way out. If you could even present a case, you were accused of making excuses. If you yesed her to death, it was pointed out and warded off. She wasn't just talking to hear herself talk, after all. I decided to play the middle. I stayed silent for a couple of bursts of her sentences to show that I was adequately shamed. And then I responded in the affirmative to show that I planned on rectifying my mistake. It mostly worked. She backed down off the edge. She still had to have the final word though. And after Ms. Pedretti said something indicating that she didn't actually care if I gained permission for whatever the slip was accounting for. Just that she wanted to be done with the process of collecting them. That's when a kid who I'll call Brendan O'Connor said it. You could always just kill yourself, you Joel. Just kill yourself, you Joel. Just kill yourself, you Just kill yourself, just kill yourself, just kill yourself Brendan was one of the ringleaders of the Rock Kids. Short and aggressive and loud. Clad in the uniform of the Rock Kid of the late 90s. SoCal skater with a twist of late era grunge and Bronx grit. As an adult, I understand now that he was a classic case of someone always looking to place the attention on someone else before it could be trained on him. In a strange way, he was similar to Miss Pedretti in that he was an aggressor who eventually set his sights on everyone at one point or another. He was a typical, harmless, middle school douchebag. I hope he grew out of it but I wouldn't bet on it. I'm recording this podcast now, almost 20 years later, so it would be silly to claim that what he said didn't hurt me. I remember it so vividly that I even remember what desk he was sitting in. Two seats over to the right and one row ahead. In today's hypersensitive teenage landscape, I can't even imagine the forlorn fire that that kind of comment would have touched off. Then, it didn't even warrant a warning from Miss Padretti. I remember what Brendan said for its crassness and its insensitivity, but mostly I remember it because of how embarrassed I felt. I was embarrassed that what I had thought to be so internal was so obvious and on display. And it was a defining moment, I think, for me, because it exposed just how clueless people could be to understanding those around them, myself included.
1: Ocean, are you listening? The most beautiful part of your body is wherever your mother's shadow falls. Here's the house, with childhood, whittled down to a single red tripwire. Don't worry. Just call it Horizon, and you'll never reach it.
0: The real first memory I have of what I would come to realize as an anxiety disorder before I even knew what anxiety disorders were took place in an aquarium. I wrote about it in my novel, Whitney. And then there was the time I ruined a trip to the mystic aquarium by having my first panic attack when I was 11. My father had a fascination with sharks So when the shark room exhibit opened, he decided we were going. My mother attempted to make a vacation out of it. The shark room was just that. A huge dark room with a floor to ceiling glass wall that looked into a tank filled with sharks. When we went in, the ceiling pushed down on me and my stomach turned over. Because of the crowds, we had to move forward into the darkness, bumping into the people around us, not unlike balancing three shots back to your friends at a bar while rubbing up against every person in your path. After only a few feet, I stopped and said something like, No, I've got to get out of here. Even though the Shark Room was really the only reason why we'd come in the first place. As the path that wound down and around in front of the shark wall got narrower, my head hurt and I couldn't breathe. I didn't know what was happening. My father, who was holding my hand, shook it and said, What do you think, it's gonna break? And knocked on the plate glass, scientifically demonstrating just how fucking simple he really was. And pictures were being snapped all around us lighting up the otherwise dark room with angry flashes. And when I saw the man in scuba gear, floating within the confines of the shark wall, waving and giving the thumbs up to the crowd, I held on to the banister that ran along the wall, and vomited all over the floor, on the wheels of a baby carriage in front of me, and on my sneakers, which were not new.
1: Here's today, jump, I promise it's not a lifeboat, here's the man whose arms are wide enough to gather your leaving, and here, the moment just after the lights go out, when you can still see the faint torch between his legs. How you use it, again and again, to find your own hands.
0: Ironically, the music that saved me from the depression of my youth was sung by a heroin-addicted, dress-wearing musician from Aberdeen, Washington, Kurt Cobain. His alienation, his speaking of feeling alone in a crowd, The fact that he got a crappy guitar as a kid and wound up changing the musical landscape forever, it all provided hope. It gave me a platform to stand on that allowed me to see above the rim of the fishbowl and beyond. It gave me a template to turn what I was feeling into something that could be appreciated, even respected, by others because that's what music does. First, it gives you hope. And then, it teaches you how to find a way out. Surely, Kurt Cobain had faced off with a few Brendan O'Connors in his day. And eventually, the Brendans wound up in the audience of Nirvana's shows. It wasn't a coincidence that Kurt always looked so angry up on stage.
1: You asked for a second chance and are given a mouth to empty into. Don't be afraid. The gunfire is only the sound of people trying to live a little longer. Ocean. Ocean, get up. The most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. And remember, loneliness is still time spent with the world.
0: I've never been a normal listener to of music. I talked about this in episode 7. My wife and my friends, if they could, would probably interject here and point out that I'm not a normal doer of much of anything. When I was starting this podcast, I wrote in my notes, I want to create something that makes other people feel the way Arcade Fire's power out makes me feel. Music has not left me. In some ways, I've outgrown Nirvana. But there continues to be a soundtrack to my life. I like to be challenged by it every day. I took way too long to write this episode. It didn't have a clear narrative arc. I'm still not sure that it does. Subconsciously, I think I was scared about my mother hearing it. I don't know that she ever fully knew the extent to which I've struggled at times in my life. I don't blame her. It wasn't her fault. She did the best she could, and even then, it was pretty good. I was scared of her knowing that I was feeling despair right in front of her that she didn't even know. Moving forward, I feel terrible that I'll never get to ask. Or even worse, that she won't hear this and be able to tell me that she did know and that she just didn't know what to do. And I know that part of my hesitation stems from a new set of fears to fear. That one day, my children will have their own run-ins with the Brendan O'Connors of the world. I won't be there to help. I can only hope that I'll be there to know. I hope that all of the music i filled Luna's first two years of life with and all the music to come for her and for her sister will guide her away from and failing that into and out of the same places that I've seen. I want her to understand the struggle though. It wasn't easy. I had to develop my own tools. Find my own way out. I hope that one day she understands how long it took me to get here. To a place where I can humorously, somewhat sarcastically, and honestly quote Kirk Cobain to end this. Teenage angst has paid off well. Now I'm bored and old.
1: Here's the room with everyone in it. Your dead friends. Passing through you, like wind through a wind chime. Here's a desk with the gimp leg and a brick to make it last. Yes, here's a room so warm and blood close. I swear you will wake and mistake these walls. For skin.
0: For more information about I Better Start Writing This Down, visit ibetterstart.net. The poem featured in today's episode is called Someday I'll Love Ocean Wrong by Ocean Wrong and was originally published in The New Yorker. To read it, you can Google the title, or you can find a link in this episode's show notes. If you want to support the show, pledge a dollar or two at patreon.com forward slash start. At this point, as season one comes to a close, I just wanted to take a moment to thank each one of my Patreon Patrons. Susanna Wheeler, aka Suze, Cynthia Rodriguez, Michelle Chiafulio, Erica Elizabeth, and Erica, I don't know if it's because you signed up through Facebook, I was gonna say your last name but then I wasn't sure if it was on purpose, but you know who you are. Nicole Haley, Ellie Mandel, a.k.a. my grandmother, James Gary, a.k.a. Uncle Jimmy, Kavon Welds, Michael Stracci, Patrice and Tony Irizarry, my in-laws, who are currently watching Luna while I edit this episode, and of course, my mom, Jody Stracci a.k.a. Jodes. These are the people who made season one and the improvements I've made to my recording and production gear possible, and they also helped to pay for the hundreds of dollars that I spent advertising this show on social media. Most importantly, though, they are 12 people who believe that creativity is worth supporting. I Better Start Writing This Down is sponsored by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com forward slash ibetterstart, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial and help to support the show all at the same time. How great is that? Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. One title that I think IBS WTD listeners would enjoy is Heavier Than Heaven, a biography of Kurt Cobain by Charles R. Cross. Back in the day, my favorite Nirvana book was Michael Azarad's Come As You Are. You'll hear more about it in a moment. But Heavier Than Heaven is a great book, too. To download it for free, go to audiblechild.com forward slash I better start. Again, that's audiblechild.com forward slash I better start to help support the show and in return receive a free audiobook and a free 30 day trial. We didn't get a lot of these sign ups during this season. I hope a couple of you will go and check it out. If you like podcasts, you'll definitely like audiobooks and Audible is really the best place to get them. So give it a shot and help me out too. As always, there are two new mementos for this episode. Memento number one is Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana by Michael Azarad. Memento number two is the Audio-Technica LP120 USB Direct Drive Professional Turntable. Come As You Are, like I said, it was my favorite. I read it dozens of times. I still have it. And it's falling apart but i'll never get rid of that book it was my bible better books have since been written about nirvana but none will ever eclipse it And the lp 120 i just got it because i'm about to inherit all of my mom's old records and i'm wanting one for a while the wire cutter says it's the best out there at least for non-audio geeks It's one of the few big-ticket items I've included as a memento this season, so buy it and help support I Better Start Writing This Down at the same time. Remember, to support the show by purchasing the mementos, you have to use the memento URLs, which you can find on ibetterstart.net, as well as in this episode's show notes, if your podcast app supports that feature. I Better Start Writing This Down, has a perky social media presence. Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, SoundCloud. I always forget to mention SoundCloud. We're everywhere. All you need to remember, our username in all those spaces, I better start. That's it. Hopefully, you wrote it down. Are you crying? Are you crying because you didn't take a nap? And you're cranky? We're recording right now, you know. What, what are you holding? What is this? What book are you pointing to? What book is this? Uh, no, you, excuse me, you don't get to decide to close my computer. I, I told you, we're recording. You're making the cats cry.